tonight's thought. How many hundreds of thousands of tapes do you think there are in storage in some anonymous warehouse in Hollywood, California of dads getting hit in the nuts with baseball bats? Yeah, you you know this tape? This ubiquitous tape everybody knows where, like, the the dad in his, like, uh, white dad shorts and tennis shoes and knee-high socks and his polo shirt is, like, teaching his kid how to hit 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 a little ball. It may be like a wiffle ball. Which wiffle balls don't really have a lot of impact, of course. We all know that, but like when the kid is five feet away, as they often are when, you know, the kid the, the, the dad is teaching him how to hit the ball, he's super, you know, they can have a lot of impact. And I don't know who's filming. The mom is probably filming or whatever, and they just want to get this monumental moment on tape where the kid learns to, you know, the young boy the 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 future Jose Jose Canseco the 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 future Barry Bonds hits his first baseball and the dad throws it right at the kid and the kid takes his little plastic little league bat and the ball of course just goes five feet right into the testicles um, it never gets old. And, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a teacher. And one thing that you find out a lot when you're a teacher is, is all the television shows that still come on that you thought have been canceled for years. They used to hold the primetime spots when everybody would be watching TV, but, uh, they've since fallen in popularity and now they've been sent to the syndication graveyard and they come on at like one thirty or two o'clock in the afternoon, along with all the uh, court shows. And one of these shows that I found out about that is still on the air is America's funniest home videos. Okay. Uh, America's funniest home videos is still on the air. And, uh, this show has been on, I looked it up since 1989. I was seven years old in 1989. I'll never forget the first time I heard of it. I mean, it seemed like the greatest idea for a show ever. And at the time, it was the greatest show ever. My Aunt Kay came down from the mountain to stay with us for a week, and she brought with her a whole bunch of videotapes that she had taped off of television of this new show called America's Funniest Home Videos. And it was hosted by Bob Saget, uh, who was kind of like television's favorite dad at the time. Well, television's favorite white dad, um, Bill Cosby was still on television at the time. And, uh, Bob Saget would uh, be there with a studio audience, I guess in California, Hollywood, California or something. And, uh, he would just be showing a bunch of these tapes that people mailed in, you know, they took videotapes like actual videotapes from their camcorders 
wrote care of Bob Saget of America's Funniest Home Videos and 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 put them in the mail and sent them in, never to be seen again. Um, they 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 would do this, which today strikes me as insane because, um, they would never they knew they were never going to see that again unless they maybe dubbed the tape. But not a lot of people did that. Not a lot of people dubbed their tapes. You know, people they really did think that VHSs they were just going to kind of you know last forever and they wouldn't need to archive them or. Or, you know, eventually a lot of people digitize their videotapes. But this idea that you're capturing this rare moment of your son hitting a baseball, and he could very well grow up to be uh, the next uh, Chipper Jones, or I don't know, the next uh, Hank Aaron or somebody like that. I don't know, that's not important. You know, he hits the dad in the nuts with a wiffle ball send it in. Okay. That's, that's, that's funny. And, and we're going to win a bunch of money. That was the idea is that if you sent it in and they actually showed it on the air, you were in the running to win a lot of money. And they would actually fly you out to Hollywood, California to be in the taping of that week's show so that they could bring you there and they could show you the, they could show the audience, the tape and based, I guess on the judges or the audience reaction or something, um, you would, you would win the money. And then I think if you won that week's show, you would then put it, be put into a whole quarterfinal or semifinal. It was kind of like star, star search, except for like stupidity. <laughs> Cause a lot of people to be in these videos had to do incredibly stupid things. They had to make an ass out of themselves. And again, these people were doing these videos. It was like lightning strikes you capture it in a bottle and then you mail it off to Bob Saget. And, uh, this was the thinking in like 1989. I, I, I really don't know how many people, uh, dubbed their tapes so that at least they could have a copy of it. These tapes went off and they were never seen again. And I just imagine, like, maybe the were those tapes destroyed? Were they or were they put in like some landfill somewhere, like the ET video game? Um, I don't know. I just kind of imagine that there's some warehouse somewhere in Hollywood, California, or where they're just stored away in some crate. Hundreds of thousands of tapes of dads getting hit in the, in the testicles with their kids' wiffle balls. Those kids are now in their thirties and forties <laughs> and they're just, those tapes are stored away, never to be seen again. They're, they're right there along with the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant from Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> from Birmingham, Alabama live. This is the Midnight Citizen Show. I'm your host, Mike Booty. Thank you so much for joining me here tonight. Yes, I am live here on youtube.com slash Mike Booty. If you are joining me, thank you so much. So great to have you. Um, looking at the live stream right now, I've got some people watching, which is amazing. Thank you so much. 
I've got PQ River commenting. Um, <laughs> he says that all of those uh, tapes are in uh, the Nutshot Warehouse on Ventura. Okay, that's great. <laughs> I don't know Los Angeles that well. To me, from Birmingham, Alabama, it's just all Hollywood. I don't know. It's all, it's all the glitz and the glamour, you know. So, but if you're not watching tonight live, don't worry about it. Uh, you can still see the live, uh, you know, uh, live stream on demand. If you go to youtube.com slash Mike Booty, it'll be there um, on Sunday. But it is Saturday night, June the 10th, 10.53 p.m. Thank you so much for joining me. But I was thinking that just the show, this America's Funniest Home Video show may very well be the most prophetic show. Is it okay to say that? The most prophetic show of possibly the second half of the 20th century? I don't know. You know, the this, this show, this, the hosted by Bob Saget, came out in 1989. And it was originally just supposed to be like a special. Um they're like, you know, hey, people do stupid things and film themselves doing it. Uh, maybe we can just build like a Sunday night little platform out of it. And um, they put out a call for people to send in the tapes. And then suddenly they were getting flooded with tapes of not just uh, dumb dad fails. Of course, that term hadn't even been invented yet, a fail. Um but, you know, just people doing really stupid things and uh, and people like laughing at that stuff, you know, like their families like laughing at it. And maybe other people will, too. So, you know, they 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 sent them in and uh, suddenly they, they had a big hit on their hands. And, and when my Aunt Kay first showed the show to me on these, you know, tapes that she had taped off television, uh, it was still in like its special format. The show did not come on every week. You You had to you had to catch it. And eventually, I guess they realized they had a hit on their hands and they put it on every every single week, right? And uh, it was a big hit and it's still on television today, even in the age of, uh, you know, the internet, obviously. Um, people no longer obviously send in videotapes. <laughs> uh, you know, they email things. And now, I don't even know what they do now on the show. Of course, now Bob Saget's not the host anymore. You've got... Um, that that guy who played Carlton on the Fresh Prince of El, of, of Bel Air, um, he's the host of it now. But I guess right now I don't know. I guess they just pull things off of a YouTube server or something. People people send it in on YouTube and or, or they just send emails. And now people can still have their own personal copies of them doing dumb things, right? But it, it definitely predicted um, what's going on now because people love to, I mean, that's one of my favorite pastimes, just to go onto YouTube and uh, just look up people doing dumb things. You know, there's all these videos that I can think of. Of course, there's countless videos of like newscasters making mistakes, like, you know, drawing 
phallic imagery on the weather map uh, when they're charting the course of a hurricane or something. Um, of course, there's the classic one of the uh, of the newscaster uh, stepping on grapes in like wine country, and she slips and falls over the barrel and just like screams in agonizing uh, pain. You know, um, it's just a tale as old as time. People love to watch videos of other people just like having a terrible time, right? <laughs> and uh, and and now it's like you have this kind of uh, complete culture around that on the internet. As a matter of fact, I was watching uh, some sketch show on on uh, on Netflix today. It was like a uh, uh, was that I think you should leave with uh, Tim Robinson. And uh, a buddy of mine told me about it last night and showed me a sketch. I was like, oh, this is kind of funny. I'll watch some more of it. You know, it's one of these sketches, sketch shows where everything is filmed. There's no live studio audience like there are for a lot of sketch shows. So it's like a complete, you know, it's just a series full of a bunch of short films. And some of them are are hits, but uh, some of them are misses. Um, But one of them that was very funny was uh, it was satirizing this moment. And I've had them. I don't know if you have, if you, if you you know, work in an office where there's some time to kill before a meeting. So what do you do with your coworkers? You know, you go onto YouTube and you just, Oh, have you seen this one? Have you seen that one? Oh my gosh, what in the world are they doing there? Why, why are they in that building? Why are they at the top of that mountain? You know? And, uh, apparently this happens enough in culture for like a sketch show on Netflix to pick up on it and satirize it. And so they're all sitting around talking about their favorite YouTube videos. And one of the guys in the room doesn't watch YouTube. He doesn't watch viral videos. So he is very much left out um, of the, of the shenanigans. That's the premise for the sketch. Um, (laughs) I'm not going to be like that guy who tells you how the sketch pays off because then I'm just like repeating a joke that I heard the other day. Uh, but you can go and watch it for yourself. I think you should leave with Tim Robinson. But, uh, anyway, of course you can't make that magic happen. You know, you can't force it to happen. And I think that was one of the things that you could always pick up on in America's funniest home videos. You just assume that if you filmed a funny video, and send it in, uh, they were just going to accept it no matter what and show the show. At least that's what my sister and I thought when we were seven and eight years old. We were just, you know, oh, we're just going to film ourselves doing something funny and then we're going to win $10,000, right? Okay. So we're in the backyard one day and we've got our, uh, my, my dad's video camera. And uh, we're like, we're going to make a, uh, we're going to make a viral video. We don't know what a viral video is, but we, we want to make a video that we want millions of people to see. And hopefully we can make a living off of it or something, you know? So we set out to make an America's Funniest Home Video. And I'm telling this story because today, July 10th, 2021, is my sister, my younger sister, Melinda's birthday. So happy birthday, Melinda. And so we would... Um, just go around the house all day making funny videos to send off. Um, and we made this video. We're in the backyard of my parents' house. This is in Moody, Alabama. And I think I'm probably eight or nine years old. My sister's probably seven or eight years old. 
And uh, we decide to, we, like, like I look in my parents' garden shed for some kind of like a, a prop that we can use. And, oh, there's a rake. And so we set down the, the rake in the yard and we're going to do like a classic rake gag, right? Like I'm going to like walk into the rake and I'm going to like step on the, on the, on the spikes, on the forks. Right. And it's going to bring the pole into my head and like bop me in the nose and boom, that's $10,000 for an America's funniest home videos. We're going to, you know, we've got the envelope with Bob Saget's name on it, ready to go. (laughs) And, uh, and you know, you just, you can't stage magic, right? You can't stage it. So I keep walking into this, into this thing and Melinda's filming it. And, uh, the thing keeps on, you know, it doesn't, you know, that rake, it just, I don't know. It's like the forks are dull or something like that, or it's like plastic or whatever. And it just bends every time I step on it. I think I end up chipping the plastic on the rake and, you know, my dad has to go get a new rake. But anyway, the thing keeps coming up and it comes up barely to my like waist level. And I keep on having to like step on it really hard to the point where I'm basically goose stepping like a Nazi or something just to get the thing to come up to shoulder length. And when I finally get it to come all the way to my, to my face, it doesn't hit me in the nose or anything, which is probably a good thing. I would have ended up in the emergency room and that would have been a funny home video, (laughs) but the thing keeps going to my left and to my right, you know, and I'm doing like a Pulp Fiction dance with it. Um, (laughs) And we do like 20 or 30 takes of this. And I'm assuming it's probably like a long summer day, like today or something where we we're out of school. And we don't have anything to do. And what I'm realizing now sitting here, you know, 31, 32 years later is that that would have been a funny video <laughs> just to film us trying to film the video and just everything going wrong. Right. And so we eventually get kind of disheartened with it. And we're sitting there at the end of the day with the video and all these takes that we did of us just getting it wrong and wrong every time. And we're sitting there and we're like, well, do we want to mail it in? And we're like, no, I, 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 we put a lot of work into this. We want to keep it. We want to keep this video, right? So Yeah. But, you know, there's this culture now, though, you go onto YouTube and you watch people trying to make these funny videos. And I don't know about you, but I can instantly tell I have a pretty good detector for when they're 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 setting themselves up. Like right now, the popular thing to do is, you know, you do all these reaction videos where you like watch something and you react to it and you film yourself reacting to it. And you can usually tell with these people that they're not sincere at all. They're just making like a big show of being surprised about something. Like they watch the new Star Wars trailer and they start crying, right? Uh, A while ago, there was this viral video that was going around YouTube of these two guys, these two kids listening to that song uh, by Phil Collins in the air tonight. And the whole time, you know, they're acting as if they're like just really surprised, like they've never heard anything like this. And then suddenly the drum beat picks up, ba bum, ba bum, ba bum, ba bum, bum bum. I can feel it, you know. And then they're just like, oh, 
cool. And they start dancing around the room and like losing it and everything. This video was everywhere. It was on the news. It was all over my social media feeds. They may have been sincere, but I don't know. I, I think like that, that's just like my sister and me playing with the rake in the backyard. You know, we're just trying and trying to stage the magic. So we got some, uh, here, well, I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll uh, play some, uh, little bit of uh this america's funniest home videos brilliance this is okay so this is the first episode of america's funniest home videos of bob saget from 1989 got a bucket oh yeah well i got a hose yeah well, i got a whole pool So Bob Saget, I, I totally forgot about this. How I don't know if they still do this. If Carlton from Fresh Prince still does this, um, but this is where like Bob Saget would actually like narrate people like their thought processes and everything. And so like he was narrating uh, these two people getting into like a fight with a water hose in their backyard, and uh, the person, one of the people, just like fell on the above ground pool and like it exploded and water went everywhere. So that's it. You have to live in the center of the earth not to love Mickey Mouse, but he's almost too perfect, isn't he? Just once, wouldn't you love to see him cut loose and get down? There are certain things in life that there are just no answers for. Like, why are these three guys standing up in the back of a truck? Or why is this truck trying to get up this hill? And why don't they make trucks like they used to? So they just fell out of the truck. Oh, here's a little kid stacking up a bunch of cat food. These tuna cans until finally they're taller than she is. Look at that. It's the leaning tower of tuna. Now, wouldn't it be nice if somebody called to congratulate her? Just she just knocked over all the cans. <laughs> I mean, you know, I gotta say, like, I'm knocking it over. I'm, I'm giving it like this kind of, you know, postmodern ir- ironic critique of America's funniest home videos, right? Oh, look at all these stupid people and Bob Saget kowtowing to them. You know, this is years before I knew that Bob Saget was actually like notorious for being one of the dirtiest comedians working at the time. You know, if you've ever caught his act, especially from that time, you know, he would, he would watch him on these family sitcoms and it'd be all like family friendly and dad and everything. And then he'd go and like tell these, uh, you know, tell these dirty jokes at nightclubs, right. On, uh, on cable. So like, uh, I found a, a compilation of, uh, kids hitting their parents groin hits remix here's like a groin hits remix of course if you're not watching this live you're gonna miss this um (laughs) you can always catch it later on demand on youtube.com slash mike booty you heard it here first right you're clearly someone who gotta get through this ad first so why wait to screen for colon cancer because when (laughs) it's great 
Okay, that's enough. If you're listening to the podcast of this, this is uh, you're not getting anything from this at all. But uh, you can just imagine that each time, you know, one of those sounds, you know, dinged, oi, ay, you know, that was somebody getting hit. Um, that was somebody getting hit in the nuts. Okay, so. So I really do wonder where all those uh, clips are. One one thing that always surprised me when I was a kid watching America's Funniest Home Videos is that uh, they would have timestamps. You know how like uh, the the old video cameras, you would you would take footage and and it would time step time stamp, not just the time that you took the video, but also the date. And I would be watching some of these shows in like 1993 or 94, and it would say like January 1986. <laughs> and uh, I would talk to my mom about that, like, wow, man, this was filmed years ago. And, you know, just my mom would be like, yeah, I mean, it probably took Bob Sackett a long time to get around to watching it. <laughs> oh. um, that's just the way it goes. That's the way it goes, you know. Um, so I've probably, I've talked a a lot about America's funniest home videos tonight. Um, yeah, one of the, one of the, one of the reasons I was kind of thinking about America's funniest home videos this week is because I was, uh, looking up just voice actors. And one thing that I totally forgot is of course, uh, America's funniest home videos was still in the era when it first came on in, in the late eighties, it was still in the era of Ernie Anderson and uh, Ernie Anderson, of course, is kind of an important guy to me because if you've been listening to the midnight citizen show for a while, you know that I, Mike Booty am a huge fan of horror hosts, uh, specifically, you know, people like Joe Bob Briggs and Elvira and Ernie Anderson was the original horror host. Um, he created a character named uh, Goulardi in Cleveland, Ohio in the 1950s. And it was this thing that, um, you know, the television station he worked for, like a lot of other television stations in the country, they would have, um, they would have a big library of, of films that they needed to show, but they didn't want to just show them because they were kind of boring and old and nobody really wanted to watch them. So they had to like repackage them. And the way that they repackaged them was by putting a horror host there. And it's honestly, it's like a lot. Television is doing this now too. Um, If you watch, for instance, uh, the independent film channel, you know, like IFC. Uh, IFC used to be this uh, channel that would actually show independent films. It doesn't do that anymore. It just shows that 70s show and like parks and recreation and all that. And um, that's kind of boring. You know, people have seen those shows a hundred times. So what are they going to do now? 
Well, they're going to repackage it in some way. So one of the things that they do is they do like um, bingo or something. You know, you can like get a bingo card from their website or their app or something like that. You can play bingo. So they come on at host segments and you can play bingo along with them. So that's one way that they have a reviving the format. So this has been going on for 60 years, 70 years, something like that. Okay. Bunch of drunk people outside. <laughs> uh if you have, uh, once again, if you're watching live, I uh, set up a camera to look outside the Midnight Citizen studio. And so I've got it on right now, and there's a bunch of people walking up from the bar down the street, just kind of pausing in front of the Midnight Citizen studio. A bunch of people just rode by on those scooters, those little electric scooters that are all over town now. I got to talk about one of those. I rode one of those the other night. I got to talk about it. But uh, <laughs> anyway, hey, listen, I'm getting off topic. Okay. What was I saying? Ernie Anderson <laughs> was Gilardi. So he was in the first wave of these horror hosts in the 1950s. And eventually he moved to California. He moved to Los Angeles, California, and he had a son named Paul Thomas Anderson who grew up to become a major film director, directed films like Boogie Nights and uh, Inherent Vice based on the Thomas Pynchon novel. And uh, Ernie Anderson became the voice, the premier voiceover artist uh, for television in the 70s and 80s, and specifically, he was the voice of ABC. So if you were watching ABC in the 1970s and 80s, if you were watching like The Love Boat or America's Funniest Home Videos, uh, you would hear Ernie Anderson's voice. And so I never knew this growing up. Then, of course, I, when I became a teenager and I started watching the films of Paul Thomas Anderson and uh, you know, uh, finding out about horror hosts myself, I would find out all this information now. And I'm like, wait, that was the guy, right? That was the guy. Let me see if I can pull up uh, some Ernie Anderson uh, voiceover here. Um, Ernie Anderson, ABC, the love boat. Let's see if we can get him on the love boat here. Right. Yeah, here's a, so if you don't know what I'm talking about, you know what I'm talking about. You've heard this guy. Just might sink. That's entertainment. It's a Titanic two-hour spectacular when Barbie Benton, David Birney, the Rovers Audra Lindley, Lola Falana, Dick Martin, and Donna Mills sail unawares into the funniest ocean disaster ever. Hello. I thought we might have a little chat. Goodbye. Is that little enough for you? Is this the big kiss-off for the love boat? <laughs> you know, the love boat. The love boat, right? Um, so, yeah, that's that's Ernie Anderson um, doing uh, the love boat. And, you know, it's just one of those things where something that you're aware of as a child and something that you are aware of as a teenager or a young man or a young adult they suddenly clash and come together and that's how you build a knowledge. That's how you build 
a brain full of useless knowledge, right? That's how you, uh, you know, that's how you win Jeopardy or something. I don't know. <laughs> so, yeah. Nice night outside the studio. I think what we're going to do You know, I got I just got to say this, okay? I was going to go to a I was going to go to a music break, but I want to do this a little bit more about uh about these voiceover artists, you know? And just how important I think they are um because they really do sell something that's unsellable um right like who would ever watch the love boat i mean was that ever really a good show was that ever really i mean just a show like you're flipping through the tv guy and it's like there there's like these people who work on like a cruise ship and they're constantly trying to like get people to fall in love with each other or something i, I mean you know that's when you need a voiceover artist you need somebody to sell the banal, right? And that's what somebody like an Ernie Anderson can do, right? Um, let me see this. Do I have? So I have like uh, I I I have like uh, some Ernie Anderson outtakes here. Let me see of him like trying to read this copy. Oh Jesus, Jesus Christ! Well, let me let me explain something to you. There's something wrong with this picture. I'm fucking leaving here. You have another plan? Answer the phone, you dumb fuck. Roll the fucking thing and shut her up. I mean, this is a, this is a guy who uh, who has to sell the banal, right? Yeah, and I guess I mean you know PQ says that people watched uh, the Love Boat when there were only three channels. I mean, I suppose so. You know, um, I don't know. I would have like read a book or something like that, but uh, <laughs> I'm sure people did a lot of that back then too. <laughs> Um, but yeah, you need a voiceover artist though, to sell the stuff, right? You need somebody to like spark some enthusiasm into it. And you know, like movie, you know, movie trailers obviously used to rely very heavily on the vo voiceover artist. Uh, there was the idea of the, the guy who would come on Don LaFontaine, right? Who would, you know, start out saying in a world, right? They all those all those movies were exactly the same. The movie trailers were the same. The copy was the same. But when that guy came on and said, "In a world," you know, you got excited, right? So, this is the last thing I'll say, and then we'll go to a music break, right? Um, about twelve or thirteen years ago, I had the opportunity to uh, to have a guest appearance in a short film that my friend, uh, my good friend Alex did um, called hell is for bastards. This is kind of like an inglorious bastards, uh, you know, kind of war movie ripoff or satire. I shouldn't call it a ripoff. It's a satire, right? Um, and uh, my friend Alex, basically what he did is he just went on to, uh, to like a voiceover, like pay a voiceover actor 
uh, webpage. And he basically just paid this professional voiceover actor that kind of had this in a world resonance, you know, to him. And, uh, so I'll play that now and you're going to be able to see a very young, this is before I started doing the midnight citizen show. Right. Yeah. But yeah, my friend Alex got this guy to record it. I think he, he paid him like a few hundred dollars and, uh, it took like an afternoon. Right. 1941, Hitler and his Axis forces had spread through Europe, spawning evil, threatening peace, decency, and freedom. It was at this time that the Americans were called in to kick some kraut ass. You wanted to see me, General? At ease, Bronson. It's those goddamn Jerry's. They've teamed up with the Japs and their advanced technology. They've come up with some kind of device. A gift for the Meritojo, my Imperial. What do they call it? A mixed cassette tape. So much for baseball and apple pie, yeah? Seat plate! It's an audio device that allows you to mix sound. Like a goddamn phonograph record. Only it's the size of a cigarette pack. God damn it, men shouldn't toy with such power. This technology could win them the war. I've been given strict orders to pass this classified information to only the best. Only the most seasoned, saviorous, succulent, sauciest bunch of men are required for this mission. So you've called on my men? Yes, you and the Savory Seven. Mr. President, we're sending in the best. Good to hear. Give the crowds hell for me and Uncle Sam. In less than an hour, aircraft from here will join others from around the world, and you will be launching the largest aerial battle in the history of mankind. Mankind. That word should have new meaning for all of us today. We can't be consumed by our petty differences. We must unite in our common interest. Perhaps it's fate that today is the 4th of July and you will once again be fighting for our freedom. Not from tyranny, oppression, or persecution. Annihilation. We're fighting for our right to live, to exist. We will not go quietly into the night. We will not vanish without a fight. We're going to live on. We're going to survive. Today, we celebrate our Independence Day. Where others fear to tread, they fight. I hate these goddamn German jungles. They win. They die. Thanks for killing that Jerry for me, Butch. Now all I need is a helmet. No sweat, Wimpy. Wimpy, get down! Don't you die on me! Get up, you son of a bitch! Where's your patriotism? Death is for Nazis! Damn you, Hitler! I'll get you for this! 
In a world where Nazi villainy lies around every corner, it takes a real bastard to survive. Experience the drama. Yeah, this is the same direction that got Wimpy and Butch killed. You got a problem, Harlan? You got a problem with my orders? No, I got a problem with your damn walk face. I'm the leader of this group. You're my soldier. Hey, you guys. We can't keep doing this. We got to fight the Nazis, not each other. Experience the action. Experience the Thrall Eyes. And Joseph Walker as Dr. Strangelove. With the mixtape, Mr. President, they will put the Doomsday Machine to shame! I did not! This summer, prepare to be red, white, and blown away by the greatest artistic achievement in all of cinema. This is my wife, Serena Ferducci, called the Ops. She wants to be a hairdresser. Let me go home. Ox. 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 Tex. Tex. God damn it! War is hell! Richard Roper claims this is the best war movie epic in years. <laughs> Prepare to cry tears of patriotism. Michael Bay, watch out. Heaven is for angels, but hell is for bastards. July 4th, 2009, Independence Day, presented in real American 3D. Uh, <laughs> so that was, uh, that was fun. I haven't seen that in many years. Uh, I think that was filmed in 2008 or so. And, uh, yeah, it was just a backyard film that, uh, my buddy Alex, uh, made with a bunch of his friends. And, uh, I just actually texted Alex while I was, uh, showing that he, he's, well, sometimes watch the show, but I know he listens to the show, so I'm sure he'll be happy to know, or maybe embarrassed. I don't know. I don't think he'll be embarrassed. No, he did a great job with that. Um, I mean, it was just a, a lot of fun to make it. We made it over the course of about a week and a half or so. Um, I think it was filmed uh, for the Sidewalk Film Festival here in Birmingham. And uh, yeah, you could hear Ken Osborne is the name of the voiceover actor. And I don't know uh, what professional uh, movie trailers he's narrated uh, or uh, commercials. I'm not sure. But uh, but that was definitely a, a, a satire of all the movie trailers that I guess Alex and uh, he's about my age. We grew up listening to in the 90s when the voiceover, that was the primary thing that sold the movie. Um, it wasn't necessarily always the celebrities 
in the movies or, or the, the special effects, you know, it was just how big and how epic can that narrator make the film, uh, uh, make the film sound right. You know, like you could put on the screen, the caption, you know, two thumbs up, uh, but it didn't really exist until you heard Siskel and Ebert give it two thumbs up. Right. I mean, that was important stuff. It was a, it was a big deal. Okay. So, yeah. So I hope you enjoyed that. I'm going to take a break here, uh, and enjoy some music. I will be back. You're listening to the midnight citizen show. Thank you so much for joining me. Da kommt Bruce Banner mit seiner grünen Mütze heute grau. Was du sauf belebt, sonst stößt er auf dich ein. Komm schon,
All right, welcome back. Hope you enjoyed that little musical interlude. Had some fun comments during that musical interlude. I got a one comment that says Harlem says hi. So am I to believe that Moody is watching right now? Really? Who played Harlem in Hell is for Bastards? The video that I just played? And then we got PQ River out in out in Truth or Consequences, New Mexico, saying Harlem Mania. So I've created a cross-continental bond over Hell is for Bastards. I'm happy. I'm so happy about that. That's great. That's what the Midnight Citizen Live can do. <laughs> oh, man. But I hope you enjoyed that music just now. Uh, the first song you heard was Freeze by Kilobot from the album Hounds of Dartmoor. Second one you just heard Running with Wise Fools by Krakatoa from the album of the same name. Uh, you may have never heard of those bands or that music before, but, you know, they're both available for free from the Free Music Archive where you can find them and a bunch of other fantastic artists. It's at freemusicarchive.org. Yes, .org. It is a nonprofit run by WFMU in New Jersey. And uh, you can use their music, and it's not just all, you know, bands and things like that. It's a lot of instrumental music things for creators like myself. You can take their music, and uh, all you got to do is attribute it. You can put it on whatever you're, you're making. As long as you're not making some kind of profit for them. Although I'm sure you could probably contact the artist. I've I've had several bands contact me before when I've played their music and just say, thanks for playing our music. And I'm sure if I were to reach out to them and say, like, hey, I'm you know, monetizing this video, would you would you like to share in the profits? I'm sure they would be okay with it, but that's not really a problem that I have because you know the Midnight Citizen is and has always been a non-profit endeavor, right? So I make the money, I make the show for no money and I put it out there for no money. And, uh, you can enjoy this show as well as the back catalog of 10 years of the midnight citizen show completely for free over at my website, mikebootycom slash the midnight citizen. And you can also watch this live stream of the show on demand over at youtube.com slash Mike booty. You can also catch up with me and a bunch of other fellow podcasters at the Overnight Scape Underground on SUG, O-N-S-U-G.com, O-N-S-U-G dot, dot, dot org. Excuse me, wait a second. I've totally forgot. Yeah, it's on SUG, O-N-S-U-G dot com. Founded by Frank Edward Nora in 2009, and we've got one of the great founding members Listening tonight, PQ River, once again, out in Truth or Consequences, New Mexico. So thank you so much for joining me, everybody, tonight. And we've got some more shows. Stick around. Yeah, I've got some uh, some movies to review. I, I bought uh, some movies this week. I never buy movies. Um. I never buy physical media anymore. There's just really no reason reason for it, and I'm running out of space rapidly. Um, 
but I do buy them every year in July and November. I go to Barnes and Noble and I mingle with all the other greasy, smelly film nerds <laughs> uh, to buy uh, Criterion movies from the Criterion collection. And they do a half off sale twice a year, once in July and once in November. And these are just absolutely fantastic editions of some great films. And I kind of went crazy this week. I bought four movies. I've never bought that many movies in one day during one of these Criterion sales, but I have them. They're right here. I'm going to get to those in just a minute. But but first, uh, what I would like to do is, uh, oh, I've got uh, some scotch here. This is normally the time of the show where I do a toast. And unfortunately, most of the time I do a toast uh, to a dead celebrity. And normally I just like to, to drink, like I was going to drink to my sister's birthday. And I will still drink to my sister's birthday. So why don't we do, we'll do two toasts, okay? So one, uh, Melinda, my younger sister who stood in the backyard with me in Moody, Alabama in 1990 and tried to make an America's Funniest Home Videos. It did not work, but we have the video now forevermore. We did not send it off to Bob Saget to store away in some warehouse in Hollywood, California, along with the Ark of the Covenant. My little sister, Melinda, toast. Okay, there it is. All right, next. Uh, a toast to a, a film director, actually. We're, we're about to talk about some movies, so we will uh, toast to the film director who passed away this week, Richard Donner. Richard Donner. Uh, Richard Donner, I, I got the sad news uh, this week, as I always do for my friend Jason. Whenever a celebrity dies, he usually texts me. says, R.I.P. Richard Donner. And uh, this is very sad. So Richard Donner is a filmmaker that goes back all the way to the 1960s. Uh, he directed he uh, some of the very early episodes of The Twilight Zone, you know, and uh, returned, I believe, to direct. No, he did not direct a, a sequence in The Twilight Zone, the movie. He was too busy um, directing The Goonies, right, or Lady Hawk, okay? So Richard Donner was one of these uh, kind of contemporaries, I would say, of Steven Spielberg. Somebody who came up uh, in the same league as Steven Spielberg, but he wasn't really quite like Spielberg in his career path, um, where like Spielberg built a brand. You know, Richard Donner was always like a director for hire. Uh, you know, there are directors like that throughout history who who routinely put out great movies, um, but because they don't really have a stamp. You know, like Spielberg, you know you're watching a Spielberg movie. You know you're watching a Tarantino movie, a Scorsese movie. Um, but movies like Richard Donner did, they they just, they're just directed in their own way, right? Like whatever the film or the script calls for, that's how Richard Donner does it. And I think that just comes from him directing television, you know, because the old television directors would just show up and they would have the script and they might have a little bit to say about the casting and things, but they would just show up, set up the shots on the soundstage and, and move on with it, right? 
And so Richard Donner was always kind of a director uh, for hire. <laughs> okay. And uh, so after, you know, the Twilight Zone and a bunch of other movies uh, or television shows he directed in the 60s, he went on, of course, to direct Superman the movie, right? Um, he was going to do Superman 2, and he, he actually filmed all of Superman 2, but then they had uh, Richard Fleischer um, step in. You know, Richard Fleischer, uh, who was Max Fleischer's son, uh, came in and uh, and directed Superman 2. But that's okay, because Richard Donner came back, so he did movies like Lady Hawk, which is sword and sorcery. Of course, uh, my generation knows him best from The Goonies, which is a movie that I've never really gotten into. I I've never really enjoyed that movie that much, but uh, I can see why people have such nostalgia for it because it's little kids, you know, going into their backyard and hunting for treasure and everything and actually finding it. And, uh, you know, it's a fun movie. It's just, I, I, I like the stuff that's grounded. That's above <laughs> before they go and hunt for the treasure and do all the stuff that people like. That's, that's when I like the movie. I like it when they're just hanging around the house you know, being goofy, pulling pranks on each other and all that. Anyway. And then of course, Richard Donner directed uh, what would become probably his, his biggest legacy, which was lethal weapon. He directed all four lethal weapon movies, right? This is the one with Mel Gibson before everybody just hated him. And before he hated everybody <laughs> and uh, Danny Glover, you know, and it was about uh, the, the, the quintessential buddy cop action comedy of the eighties. You know, where they're hunting down uh, pornographers and, 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 and heroin dealers. And uh, Lethal Weapon 2, in my, my opinion, is probably like the greatest comedy sequel ever made. It's Joe Pesci, um, where they're, it's like a weird action comedy, but it's got like a social statement to it. It's all about um, them going after some kind of South African uh, drug smuggling ring, right? Or no, it's a... I think they're like laundering money or something like that. But, you know, of course, South Africa at the time, uh, it, it was like a big anti-apartheid statement to make the, uh, to make the villains South Africans in lethal weapon too. So anyway, all right. So that was Richard Donner's, uh, you know, major achievements and, uh, really, uh, his film career more or less, I wouldn't say he did like a lot of really big movies in the nineties. He did movies like, uh, like conspiracy theory with Mel Gibson and Julia Roberts. Um, and, uh, and then in the two thousands, his, his career kind of fizzled out. He was sort of retiring and all that, but, uh, I mean, nevertheless, I think Richard Donner, uh, is just one of these great directors that a lot of people don't really recognize for how good he really was. Like you, you look at somebody like a Spielberg or a Tarantino or a Scorsese, and you're like, they were a great director or they are a great director. You know, it's like you always know you're watching one of their movies. But I always think like these directors for hire, like a Richard Donner, somebody like that. You're like, every one of their movies is different. So can you honestly say they're like, in a lot of ways, in their own respect, a better director? I don't know. So anyway, so we'll take we'll take a toast to uh, Richard Donner uh, right now. And uh, and yeah. Let's do it. Here you go, Dick. Richard Lester, 
Thank you, Adam. Richard Lester. Not Fleischer, excuse me. <laughs> Directed Superman 2. Okay, thank you. And we have another toast also. So, um, Paul, my old manager at Starbucks, <laughs> good old friend Paul, is having a Midnight Citizen watch party right now at his house. And that's where uh, Moody, who played Harlem in Hell is for Bastards, is. And uh, they're all sitting out there, and apparently it is Paul's wife's Jody's birthday. Paul's wife's Jody, Jody's birthday. Wow, that's three possessives in one sentence. I don't know if I've ever done that before. But anyway, so we will all drink a toast to Jody also. Jody, happy birthday. Thank you so much. <laughs> It's not really birthday music. <laughs> All right. So yeah. So what do we, what do, what movies do we have here? So we've got some Criterion movies here to to talk about. So the Criterion Collection, once again, just let me kind of tell you, if you're not familiar with it, for uh, film geeks like me, this is a major deal because, um, you know, you don't want to just watch the movie that's that's not good enough you know you you have to really indulge yourself in the world of the movie there are not a lot of movies like that that i care about um but one remarkable thing about the criterion collection is that they can really make you care about a movie that you never really thought that you cared that much about before um and they do it with this just amazing packaging okay so I'll show you, for instance, one movie that I bought this week was uh, Shampoo, right? This movie from the 70s. I've never really cared much about this movie at all. Um, okay, so this is a movie with Warren Beatty and Goldie Hawn and Julie Christie. And it came out in 1975, right? And uh, I won't say that I bought the movie just because of the packaging, okay? I'm not going to say, I'm not going to be that stupid, right? But, or that, you know that submissive to advertising. Okay. Um, but I have seen this movie before. I've seen it several times and, uh, it's, uh, I'll tell you the reason I bought it. One is because, uh, it's just, I've been reading the novelization by Quentin Tarantino of his movie that came out a couple of years ago, once upon a time in Hollywood, which takes place in 1969. And it's really, from a lot of perspectives, it's Quentin Tarantino trying to re you know, like reimagine or not really reimagine, but like really bring to life the Hollywood that he knew in 1969. And so this movie shampoo, I think is a perfect complement to that, to that book in the movie. Once upon a time in Hollywood, it takes place in 1968. It was released in 1975. Uh, but, it takes place in 1968, just before Richard Nixon is elected president of the United States. And, uh, it's about a hairdresser played by Warren Beatty. Um, who basically just goes throughout the entire movie, just having sex with different women. And the men who love them are completely oblivious because they think it's, you know, the 1960s in Los Angeles, a, a male hairdresser, he has to be gay. Right. So that's kind of the whole comic premise of the movie. Um, 
But the primary reason I bought the movie is just because it really is like a day in the life. It's like a slice of life of, of, of Los Angeles of a certain time in the 1960s, just before like, you know, things like Altamont and the Manson murders, you know, and, and, and Watergate. And uh, it's, it's just this time where there was a lot more, there seemed to be like a lot more innocence going on. Now, of course, the film, as I said, was made in 1975. So it's like an, it's an attempt in a little bit of a way to reimagine or maybe romanticize a simpler time a little bit. And if you're listening and you're like, oh, I was alive in the 1960s. It was nothing like that. Everybody was just like insane all the time. Um, it was no surprise what happened with Charles Manson and Sharon Tate and all them. Okay. It's like, we knew it was going to happen. Right. Okay. Um, yeah, no, I know. But I think that there is like this, this version of the 1960s that shampoo actually gets along quite well. Um, it, 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 it makes its point in the fact that everybody seems to be so wrapped up and consumed with their own lives and their own narcissism that they can't really see the fact that times are changing and that, that, that things are, are really not as comforting and not, not as uh, not as nice as they may seem on the outside. Um, so I think if you're watching shampoo and like, it's very basic level, you'll just enjoy Warren Beatty going around, like driving his triumph mo- motorcycle around and having sex with all these women. And it's, it's kind of funny and it's a fun farce, but on, on, on the deeper level there, there's definitely this idea that these people, like every time they're in a room, there's like a television that's playing like war coverage or like Nixon campaigning or something. And, and nobody's paying attention to any of it, you know? And so in a way, it's like one of the reasons that Criterion selects the movies that they do, you know, not every movie deserves a Criterion and they don't select every movie for a Criterion release. But one of the reasons they, they select Criterion movies is they look at these old classic films that might still have relevance today. And I think shampoo definitely does and not to get too political. Okay. But I think like one of the, uh, one of the reasons that Donald Trump was elected in 2016 and why we had such a four year long shit show um, was because people had become lethargic in the way, in the same way that shampoo makes a case for the way that they had done in the 1960s, right? People have become so consumed and so, uh, so narcissistic. And they basically, in a lot of ways, let pop culture rule their lives. Okay. Um, that they were just making bad decisions and not even realizing it until many years later. Yeah. So anyway, it's a good film shampoo. I got it on a criterion and they always have these great special features, you know, um, <laughs> they always have these great special features. Um, like they've got a conversation between two film critics talking about the movie, uh, excerpt from a 1999 appearance by Warren Beatty on the South bank show. Uh, an essay. They always have an essay and, uh, you know, some of the, some of the movies are loaded up a lot better than others, but um, anyway, that's really, all right. The other two I got, uh, they kind of go together. Um, we got two films by Albert Brooks. I've been meaning to get these for a while. Um, these are so like Albert Brooks, of course, is the great American comic and filmmaker. 
who uh, to me just made some of the greatest movies of all time. One of them is Lost in America. Just a great comedy. And I always think about Lost in America every time I either change a job or I'm thinking of changing a job. Uh, Lost in America is that great film about this guy played by Albert Brooks who decides to quit his high salaried position as an advertising executive and just drop out of society in 1985, much in the same way that uh, the heroes of his favorite film, Easy Rider did. And he's like, we're just going to drop out of society because I'm tired of the rat race. I'm tired of worrying about who's getting a promotion over me. So they drop out of society and they buy an RV and they decide to just live the rest of their lives in an RV on something like $125,000 in cash, right? It sounds like a dumb plan. It is a dumb plan. And honestly, every time I think about like, the fact that the world is open to me. I can, I don't have to stay in my job if I don't want to, you know, I was thinking about this earlier this summer when I'm like, I'm done with another year of teaching. Do I want to do another year? Or do I want to just drop out and do something else? I think about lost in America right now. I'm not saying that like my wife and I are going to get an RV and we're going to go to Las Vegas and like they do in the movie. And my wife is going to do well, an incredibly stupid thing. I won't spoil it for you. If you haven't seen the movie, but, um, I just always think about that. So lost in America is a great film. Albert Brooks. Uh, the other film is defending your life. The movie that he made is a follow-up to lost in America. It's still in the shrink wrap. I haven't opened this up yet. Uh, defending your life though is a, is a great comedy. And, uh, one of the criticisms that Albert Brooks gets about a lot of his movies is that they don't have good endings. They always seem, his endings always kind of seem tacked on, like they're just kind of afterthoughts for the rest of the movie. And while definitely with some of his movies, I agree with that, uh, defending your life has a great ending. It has a genuinely fantastic, you know, those endings, you watch a movie and you just kind of get goosebumps because it's so good. And you just, you feel like the ending is so earned. You know, there are like a few movies like that, like the end of Back to the Future is like that. You know, you get goosebumps because it's so good. Uh, The ending of the Shawshank Redemption, you know, where he like meets Morgan Freeman on the beach and they hug. Right. And the camera pans away. I mean, that's that's like a goose flesh ending. Um, Defending Your Life has a goose flesh ending, in my opinion, has a great ending. Um, Basically, it's uh, about a guy who uh, dies right in a bus crash. And, um, don't worry about it. It's not like a morbid, sick movie or anything. It's actually very funny the way that he dies. Um, driving around the, driving down the street, listening to like a Barbara Streisand song, (laughs) which is like the worst possible way to die in the world (laughs) to me. I mean, you could be thrown into a pit of lava or you could die listening to a Barbara Streisand song. I don't know which is worse, but anyway. So he, uh, he goes to heaven, but it's not really heaven. It's like this it's, and it's not purgatory either. He basically goes to this alternate reality where it's like, uh, it's called judgment city. And this is a place where you go. And what you essentially have to do is you get an attorney and you go into a courtroom and you have to defend your life. That's the title of the movie. Yes. And what you have to do is you have to sit in there and you have to convince everybody. So the idea is that you get many, many lives. 
And with each life, what you're supposed to do on earth is you're supposed to overcome fear. You're supposed to basically advance humanity by not being afraid of anything, by, by, by taking chances and, and, and going out on a limb. Right. And so Albert Brooks's character in that movie has to prove that he took all the chances that he could have, that he invested in risky stock deals, that he went in and stood up to his boss, you know, to get a promotion, um, things like that. And if he can't prove that he overcame fear and that he was a brave individual on the planet, then he has to get sent back. Right. And so, of course, Albert Brooks, the, the character of Albert Brooks plays is the character he always plays. It's kind of like Woody Allen always plays like a nebbishy guy. Right. Um, Albert Brooks plays just like a nervous, neurotic dude. And so, of course, he can't convince the judge that he has earned the right to move on, to ultimately not have to go back to the planet Earth but to move on to heaven. Um, and so that's kind of the, the, the tension of the film is that, you know, that Albert Brooks is going to get sent back to earth. Right. But does he still have one more chance to redeem himself? You know, because he's still in the same body and he still has the same consciousness that he did on earth. So, uh, defending your life is one of those great comedies that just explores the idea of like what happens after we die. And, um, you know, there's a heaven and the, there's a hell or there's a purgatory, but you know, ultimately like, why are we on this planet to begin with anyway? You know, naturally our, our instincts are to survive, right? And sometimes to survive, we have to flee from danger, right? But nobody ever did anything from humanity by running away. You know, we have to move the human race forward. We have to advance technology by facing our fears and doing things that are, are terrible, right? That where we could die. Okay. And so defending your life assumes that there is a reality after we die that sort of assesses whether or not we actually contributed to human, the human races, um, advancement on the planet, which I think is fascinating. Because, you know, growing up in the church, I always assumed, I was always told that God is somewhat indifferent, um, you know, to, to our plight on the earth, right? Um, he doesn't really care about what the context, uh, you know, was if you sinned. He just cares that you sinned, right? Anyway. <laughs> should say that Meryl Streep isn't defending your life also. Meryl Streep. Yeah. Um, okay. What was the other film? So I got another film here, right? Um, and I got, I, I got a documentary. Okay. A documentary. And uh, the, 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 the Blu-ray is not in here because I was just watching it called Town Bloody Hall. Right. And what I like to do a lot of the times with these criterion sales is I do blind buy things. And I blind bought this one. Blind buying is meaning you, you, you buy it without having ever seen it, without hardly knowing anything about it. And so I gave myself over to this, not because of the cover art or anything, even though it is a beautiful, it, it, it looks like, um, like a, a, 
like a banner ad for like a, a boxing match or something like that. And uh, the, the cover of it says, uh, Susan Sontag, ringside, Betty Ferdan, ringside, Jacqueline Sabalis, Jermaine Greer, Jill Johnston, Diana Trilling versus Norman Mailer, right? I saw that and I just got excited, right? Okay. So, yeah, this is a good, um, this is a good film. Okay. So it's a documentary. It was originally filmed in 1971 and the documentary film, filmmaker, D.A. Pennybacker, D.A. Pennybacker, right? Am I saying that right? Who directed probably my favorite documentary of all time, The War Room, about the 1999, you know, Clinton campaign to become president. D.A. Pennebacker was asked by his friend Norman Mailer to come to Town Hall in Manhattan and film a discussion or a debate between him and four of the leading feminists at the time. Okay. This is fascinating to me because I love little, you know, things like this. And and this is the New York intelligentsia in the 1970s fascinates me. You know, this is a time where you had Gore Vidal and William Buckley going on television. You know, two of the leading intellectuals at the time who talked like, you know, overeducated, pretentious New Englanders. And millions of people would watch them on television. They cared about what they had to say. This is this. Nobody would give a care about these guys anymore. You know, but this is a time where it's like, you know, it's like these people who are writing for Harper's and New Yorker and everything, you know, they were celebrities on the level of like whatever we would have now, Brad Pitt or DiCaprio, you know? And so Norman Mailer was one of these, um, was like the establishment intelligentsia. You know, he had won the Pulitzer Prize a couple of times. He was a very widely read author. And in 1971, he wrote a very controversial piece for a magazine which essentially dismissed the women's rights movement. And he was seen as, um, you know, a male chauvinist pig and all this stuff. And so these, uh, the town hall in New York, which is this concert venue, had this, uh, organized this talk for Norman Mailer to go and defend himself against these leading feminists at the time. And it's called Town Bloody Hall for a good reason. The, the, uh, one of the uh, authors that he spoke with in the, in the movie, Jermaine Greer, calls it Town Bloody Hall. You know, she's English. But it's definitely bloody because like from the very beginning, the arguing stops and it just goes on for about an hour and a half. And it's a really fantastic look into it's like a niche documentary. You know, it's not for everybody, but it's a very, really fantastic look into the way that people spoke and the way that people thought and the way that people, uh, you know, uh, articulated themselves in the 1970s in a way that they are very much afraid to now, you know, there's a lot of stepping on eggshells, a lot of sensitivity now. And this is very much uh, just a document of a time in history 
when people really believe that in order to have any kind of understanding, you could not hold back. And I thought, I just think it's a fascinating film for that matter. Um, what I find fascinating about town bloody hall also is that D.A. Pinnebacker, the documentary filmmaker, just brought a couple of cameras uh, to this event on a whim. He had no idea what he was going to do with this footage. And the reason that the movie did not come out until nine years after the event had taken place, it was eventually released theatrically in 1979, is because uh, he thought the footage was unusable. And indeed, when you watch the film, the camera work is very shaky. Um, it's kind of all over the place. He filmed three and a half hours of footage. Um, it was very difficult to edit it down. And eventually one of his partners found the footage in storage and edited it down. And indeed, it like works really well. It's not a three and a half hour long film. It's about an hour and a half. And it's distilled down to its, you know, its bones, right? And the shakiness of the camera actually adds to the tension. It really works, okay? So why am I really going into all this, okay? The point is, is that I am a very big fan of documentary films. I, I love the idea of documentary films that you can just pick up a camera and you can go into an event and you can film it without knowing it, what you're going to do with the footage. You could just like have it on a hard drive or you could have it in storage and you'll never know what you're going to do with it, but you do have it. It's a document of history, right? That's not how documentary films are made anymore. I don't think, you know, documentary films now are made after an event has happened minds have been made out up about what happened at that, that event. And so now they take cameras and they film a bunch of talking heads of people recounting what happened at that event and giving their opinions. And what they do in order to take you into that event, rather than actually having footage of it is they will do like animation to reenact it or something like that, or they'll do a reenactment. And I think all this started with, a really good film that was made in the eighties by Errol Morris called the thin blue line. That's when the whole idea of like, Oh, you can restage events for a documentary came into fashion. Okay. You know, and I, I think it, it's like watching a movie like town bloody hall gets me really hot and bothered about the state of modern documentaries <laughs> because, um, I think about another film that was made around that same time uh, by the Maisel brothers, um, great documentary filmmakers who, you know, created this whole uh, way of making documentaries, which was called direct cinema. And indeed it, it really revived the idea of documentary filmmaking in the late sixties. Um, direct cinema is this idea that you do just film a bunch of stuff and you edit it together and that's the only amount of editorial input that the filmmakers have is their editing. They don't provide narration. They don't make themselves a part of the documentary. Okay. It's direct cinema. They're trying to give the audience 
um, as much of a fly on the wall perspective of what happened so that the audience can then make up their mind about it. You know, there's none of this idea that you're going to, you're going to watch something already knowing what the filmmaker's agenda is. Okay. So, um, the Maisel brothers made this movie, uh, called, uh, gimme shelter, which is about the Rolling Stones and the disastrous concert they put on at the Altamont Speedway outside San Francisco, California in 1969. And the idea is that Mick Jagger and Keith Richards and these guys basically allowed the Maisel brothers to film them, but they did not tell the Maisel brothers what they needed to film, what they should film. They didn't tell the Maisel brothers what to take out of the film. They just handed the project over to them and gave them complete editorial control. And that film actually starts with Mick Jagger being shown the footage of a knife or I'm sorry, a gun, you know, being pulled on him um, by a member of the audience. And Mick Jagger is like shocked about it. Right. And in that moment where the gun is pulled on him, a hell's angel wrestles him to the ground and ends up killing him. Okay. So why is a hell's angels there? Well, it's because the Rolling Stones thought it would be a good idea to hire the hell's angels to, uh, to run security at the Altamont Speedway, which was a free concert and expected to be from the outset more heavily attended than Woodstock. Okay. And they paid the Hells Angels in beer, right? Okay. So after all of this, after all the crazy stuff that happened, after several people were killed, and after the event was considered a disaster, and after Mick Jagger and Keith Richards and the rest of the Rolling Stones were considered uh completely responsible for the affair, essentially. It never dawns on Mick Jagger to like tell the Maisel brothers, maybe don't release that footage, right? Maybe don't make a, a, a documentary of it, but the Maisel brothers do it. Mick Jagger never tells them anything, right? And so you cut to today where everybody has such an obsession over narrative. And if a documentary gets made about a subject, you better bet that that subject is going to have something to say about what's in the final film or maybe not them, but their publicists, their agents, everybody. Right. You know, and so getting back to the point that, the, the, you know, town bloody hall watching it just makes you really kind of mourn the idea that there was a time where you could take a, a camera um, into the crowd, film it, and you don't know what's going to come with the footage, but you know that whatever's you're going to do with it, it's going to be your decision as the documentary filmmaker and nobody else's, right? my dog okay this is a good time to cut stop it Izzy stop.
This is a good time to this is a good time to cut to the video street video store. Take a trip down there, yes. While I get my dog out of here. <laughs> it's a terrific it. date movie. They are the Wonder Women of 2004. It's the best of Seinfeld. Sleepover. Rated PG. They have the voices you know and the faces you don't. And they're among the very few who've made it really big. At 8.37.30 Central, tonight on Fox. And the clock is ticking. Put the voices with the pictures and you really appreciate what they do. For Jack Bauer, the question is real. That's the booming greatness of the godfather of voiceover artist, Don LaFontaine. Just listen. The game is deadlier. The action is more explosive. But the attitude hasn't changed at all. Die hard with a vengeance. There's hundreds, maybe thousands of people doing voice work, but only five of them are making all the money. Yeah, that's as it should be. <laughs> I'm sorry, as long as I'm one of the five, that's as it should be. And he's been at it for decades, for the most part enjoying the anonymity, except, of course, where there's a chance to appear on camera as himself, like in this Fox promo for Arrested Development. The best new comedy of the season, the unanimous favorite. Okay, hold it, hold it. How many more of these things are there? I get paid by the word, you know. 30 more, Don. Okay, let's do this. He's a, a, the curmudgeon of the voice field. He just, uh, he doesn't take it too seriously. He, he still say, uh, says to me, they pay me this to do that. Without being too specific and without prying, how much money is there in, 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 in successful voice work? Millions. Yeah. For the, for the top guys, yeah, there's... We watch Don work in a studio, but he and the others with million-dollar voices do most of their work right at home. Love can seduce you. Take Ben Patrick Johnson. He's built a studio with a view right at the house. He even has his own engineer. Ben Patrick Johnson, take one. On July 9th, the game is on. The friends, the rivals. On this night, anything can happen. Sleepover. FBI agents Marcus and Kevin Copeland have been assigned to protect the heiresses to a multi-billion dollar fortune. White chicks. There are, I'd say five or ten of us that, that, that could have the lion's share of the work. But what Notice the hands moving as the big voices work. Project Twilight. It's, it's all part of perfecting their inflection. The Find out when your votes are announced live. And that comes from acting. I started this clinic. I am this clinic. From the small screen, George Deloyo brought his big voiceovers to the silver screen. Thumbs up. See it. 13 going on 30. What makes George really stand out is equally ease with English and Spanish. Y Jill está contenta. The thing that sold me to the agency was that they said, well, he speaks Spanish and that's a growing market. And all right, we'll sign him because he does Spanish. It is a boys' club. Cedaring Fox club. is one of the I mean, few women to really succeed in voiceovers. She doesn't work out of a home studio with a view, but in a tiny bedroom enclosure. Garage, which houses my very little studio. <laughs> Her equipment is connected via broadcast quality lines to networks and local stations. Women in the city. 
It's all about the shoes, tonight at 11. You have to really take it seriously. So when they say voiceover artist, there really is an art to it. I believe, I believe there's a, a wonderful art to it. Commercials, and Seedering foresees more voiceover work and money for women. And they're a force to be reckoned with. They say every job has its ups and downs. Hope comes alive. But for the top voices working at home and making millions, it's sure hard to find a downside. Uh, there is no worst part. There's no downside, at least not for me, because I love what I do. I always have. <clears throat> and I consider myself certainly the luckiest person I've ever met. So how do you break into voiceover work? You'll need plenty of talent, of course, a strong sample reel, a great agent, and a lot of luck. of a killer shark. It somehow touched a nerve that I didn't know that I had touched uh, of deep fear in people, some sort of atavistic sense of the, the terror that is inexpressed about being eaten. It made you think about uh, the possibility of something like that actually happening to you. And I used to always look at the sea, the, the, the sea, the jaws, the jaws, <laughs> always expecting a big shark to come. I go to the beach, but I won't go in the water. At home, I have a composite of uh, political cartoons from all over the world. Jaws, 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 Jaws. Everything was Jaws. It was, uh, it was like a, uh, uh, a whirlwind. again. Amity Six of Ace, somebody tell Chief Brody we're gonna have to wait in the boathouse till it gets here. This one screamed all the way through. Oh man, it was fabulous. It was fun. I cannot live another day without air conditioning. Says tomorrow's gonna be hotter. Hotter? Like yesterday. Yesterday? Yesterday you said you'd call Sears. I'll call today. You call now. Now's the time to save on Sears Installed Central Air Conditioning. Get 0% finance charge, no billing, and no payments until August with the Sears Charge Home Improvement Plan. Call now for a free in-home estimate on a Kenmore air conditioning system. State-of-the-art engineering means greater energy efficiency. A new Kenmore could save 10 to 44% on your annual cooling costs. In time, even pay for itself. Sears also offers fast emergency installation, a five-year warranty on parts and labor, plus our satisfaction guarantee. And you know Sears will be there to back it up. Get 0% finance charge, no billing, no payments until August. Offer ends May 31st, so call now and save with Sears. So what's the paper say about tomorrow? Another scorcher. Cool.
Okay, I'm back. Hope you enjoyed that trip down there to the Video Street Video Store. I had to put the dog in the kennel. I always think that she's just going to be so good and just like so quiet in here. I'm fooling myself. I don't know. Had a look just a minute ago outside the Midnight Citizen Studio. Yeah, I, uh, I set up a camera out there. I discovered a webcam at the bottom of a bag of cords this week. And uh, it still works. I'm surprised. It had like a cracked lens and everything. That's why there's a little bit of static on it. But I was like, uh, it'd be kind of cool just to set up a camera outside the Midnight Citizen studio and just capture any craziness that goes on there. It is Saturday night here in Birmingham, and I am up the street from a bunch of bars and restaurants and um, prone to getting quite a lot of traffic. A few fights, you know. But yeah, earlier I saw uh, a big uh, a whole posse of people on these, like, scooters driving by there. And this has become the new thing in Birmingham. There's, there's like, these electric scooters that are, like, parked all over the place, and uh, you have to unlock them with an app. And you can park them anywhere. At least I thought you could park them anywhere. You see them just, like, thrown all over town, you know? They're just, like, on the curbs and the sidewalks, sometimes in the middle of the street. And you pick them up and you just unlock them with your phone. And, uh, you know, you pay money to ride on them. And uh, they're kind of fun, but they, they, they are uh, a little bit of a nuisance, I have to say. Uh, Birmingham, for one, is not much of a, a bike city. There, there are not really a whole lot of bike lanes. And so the people who ride bicycles around the city are, are pretty hip to what the rules are. Um, but now you've got these scooters and it's like definitely democratized, uh, pedestrian travel a lot more. And so now you got these people riding these scooters, like on the, in the middle of the street, blocking traffic, riding down the sidewalk and kind of forcing pedestrians who are walking, you know, off to the side. And, uh, it'll be interesting to see if this kind of thing lasts because, uh, it's honestly, it's like to me, in my opinion, maybe I'm just being curmudgeonly, but it, it is quite annoying. Uh, you know, but I'm not, I'm not ill, I'm not ill-informed. I don't wish to be ill-informed. I, I did try one of these out myself the other day. Yes, I did. Uh, last week I had my car in the shop and I had to take it down a, a few blocks to 6th Avenue South into the shop and, uh. I was going to walk back and it's about a 20 minute walk from the shop back to my apartment. And I was walking down and I just passed one of these scooters and it had just been like parked on in the middle of the sidewalk. And I walked by it for a second. And I'm like, ah, I'm not going to be one of those guys. And then I was like, ah, no, I'm, you know, part of the idea of being the midnight citizen is I'm curious. I have to try new things, right? So I took my phone out and unlocked it. And I'm like, oh, this will probably cost me maybe two bucks to ride home, right? To ride, you know, three blocks home. About a five-minute walk or so, okay? And um, I open it up with my phone and I have to put 
in a deposit. No, I can't put any less. I can definitely put more. I can put as much as like $50 on there. But I have to deposit $10 from my account. And I'm just like, you know what? I hate these things so much, but I don't want to just be like, I don't want to, I don't want to like hate them blindly. Like if I'm going to hate something, I, I want to experience it. I want to have an opinion that's informed. <laughs> so, you know, I was like, oh, whatever. It's a Monday morning. I don't have anything else to do. So, so I, I put $10 on this app and I unlock the thing. And I drive home and it is, you know, I got to say, it is kind of fun. If not a little dangerous, you know, the roads in Birmingham and the sidewalks are a little bumpy and they're cracked. You know, and there's evidence of sinkholes everywhere. So you got to be careful. I mean, they advise you to wear a helmet, but I never see anybody wearing a helmet on these things, right? It's not like you just leave your house preparing to walk with a helmet. You know, you, you, you have to kind of plan ahead. Um, but I guess, you know, that little thing on the app that says always wear a helmet, it like relieves them of liability. So if somebody like falls and breaks their crown or something like that, uh, they can't sue the scooter company. So, yeah. so I got on this thing and I, I came home and I, I'm, I'm ended up waiting at like two red lights on the way home. And I'm like, Oh, it's not charging me for this. And then I get home and I find out, no, it actually charges you per minute that you're riding the thing. And red lights in Birmingham can take a long time to change. So I rode the thing three blocks for a total of about seven minutes. And I used up almost my entire $10 deposit. <laughs> I just see people riding these things all over town and coming by the Midnight Citizen Studio here. Sometimes they're riding them two by two. And I'm just like, those people are spending a lot of money, you know, to ride on this goofball scooter everywhere. I don't know. I shouldn't knock it. Fine. They're electric vehicles. They're saving the environment. That's great. I think there's something a little exploitative about it. You know, you got to pay money, all this money to save the environment. I don't know. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. Welcome back here into the Midnight Citizen Studio. Yeah. Uh, one more thing to talk about uh, there. Uh, so I did just uh, finish reading um, the Once Upon a Time in Hollywood book, right? Um, this is a book that's based on the movie uh, that came out a couple of years ago called Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And it takes place in, uh, you know, it's a Quentin Tarantino movie. Quentin Tarantino, of course, is the I really think that Tarantino may very well be the, you know, kind of the last great American filmmaker uh, working right now. Um, I think he, his movies are all uniquely original. They're very much informed uh, by, you know, the last 120 years or so of movies. It's like he takes every single movie, every single movie genre and just throws it into a blender and just sees what sees what comes out. Uh, his movies have not always hit with me. I didn't really like Django Unchained. I was kind of lukewarm on his last film, The Hateful Eight. Uh, but Once Upon a Time in Hollywood just like uh, hit on all cylinders with me. I don't know what it is about that movie. There's so much. It's such a great film. 
And um, if you're not aware, it, it is, it's, a, it's a film that takes place um, on two days in 1969, one in February and one in August. And the day in February, which is the first, I would say, two acts of the film, you get to know uh, primarily three people. Rick Dalton, played by Leonardo DiCaprio, uh, who is an aging Hollywood actor, um, kind of from the late 50s, early 60s, who used to be like the, the star of a hit uh, Western television show. You know, Western television shows were all the rage back then. You know, shows like Gunsmoke. And Bonanza and the Rifleman with Chuck Connors. Yeah. And then you get to know his stuntman, played by Brad Pitt. Uh, stuntman is named Cliff Booth. And uh, Cliff Booth, of course, because Rick Dalton has fallen on hard times, Cliff has as well. And Cliff, because of uh, a series of run-ins with uh, you know, actors in Hollywood like Bruce Lee, where Cliff essentially shows them up and you know, fights them and beats them up, you know, uh, Cliff ends up kind of blackballed from the stunt industry. And basically he's relegated to driving Rick Dalton around town and fixing the antenna on his roof and things like that. And, uh, finally you get to know Sharon Tate, who we all know, of course, was brutally and tragically murdered in her home by members of the Manson family cult. Uh, in August of 1969, and that's when the second day takes place, right? Uh, so the first two acts of the film that take place in, in February of 1969 are, are, are relatively chill. You know, you just get to hang out with these characters. You get to see Rick Dalton go to work on a new Western TV show. You get to see Cliff Booth driving around town. It's one of the things I love about the film is that it's just a, it's a love letter to driving around. And one of my favorite things, and I think a lot of people love this, I mean, that's why, you know, cars are so you know expensive uh people love to drive around there's just this like undeniable freedom of just rolling the window down turning the radio up driving around town stopping at stoplights you know just looking around just meditating and once upon a time in hollywood is just a love letter to driving around right and uh, the film, it won an Academy Award for production design. So as, as Brad Pitt is driving around town, you're seeing all this amazing, like they recreated with like no computer generation. I don't think at all what Hollywood looked like in 1969. Of course, Quentin Tarantino has great memory of what Hollywood looked like in 1969 because he was a young child back then. And there's a lot of great shots that are sort of, in the passenger seat, looking up, tilted up at Brad Pitt as he's driving around. And, and Tarantino has said that that was my point of view in 1969, driving around with my dad and his convertible around Hollywood, right? So you get to hang out a lot with Cliff Booth as he's driving around town. And then you get to hang out with Sharon Tate, who basically just runs errands throughout most of the entire movie. Like she goes to see a movie that she starred in. You know, she was an up and coming young actress in 1969. She had starred in her husband, Roman Polanski's vampire movie. Pardon me, but your teeth are in my neck. Um, and yeah, she had a wonderful career ahead of her and it was tragically cut short, right? In August of 1969. And that is of course the very tense third act of the film. When finally you get the feeling that all the fun is over, Right. And indeed, it actually starts like the, the third act begins with the Rolling Stones, you know, Baby, You're Out of Time, 
you just have this feeling that like things are coming to an end in the 1960s. This is the end of it. This is kind of like what I was talking about with shampoo where like all these people are so concentrated on their own problems that they really don't see the killers hiding in the shadows. Right. So the third act of the film was very tense. Of course I will not spoil it. This movie did come out two years ago. Um, but Quentin Tarantino just made an interesting choice to novelize his own film. Now, all my life, I've kind of had a lukewarm relationship with novelizations of films. Because I've always, I grew up being told by English teachers and, and teachers and my parents that that's not really reading. You know, you're, you're reading the novel of a film that you know very well. So it's not really like you're engaging your imagination. And I always understood what they meant by that. But I think a good novelization can go very, very far to like advancing your understanding of the movie. And a lot of times, you know, novelizations are not based on the movies that you see. They're based on the screenplays that the movies are made from. Right. So a lot of times when you read a novelization of a film, you're actually finding out things that were not in the movie that actually lead to your understanding of the movie. Okay. So, Quentin Tarantino wrote this movie or this book from his own screenplay. So needless to say, there is a ton of stuff in the book that was not in the movie that helps you understand a lot of the stuff that is in the movie that you love so much. But the book itself, I think, stands alone as its own wonderful experience. For instance, it, it ends completely differently. Like the ending of the film is mentioned in the first hundred pages of the book and it's never mentioned again. So the, the, the book ends where essentially act two in the film ends, you know, not to spoil it. There's a whole scene at the end of the book that was not in the film. They did shoot for the film, but it's not in the film. And uh, it just contributes. It's, it's, I don't even think that you need to see the movie to really enjoy the book. I think it stands alone by itself, right? So there's something a lot of fun about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I just finished it uh, yesterday. Um, it's a movie where a lot of the scenes are taken directly from the film, but apparently Tarantino wrote it um, after the film came out. So he's making up a lot of backstory that wasn't even there you know, when he made the film. For instance, Cliff Booth and his, you know, war record, like Cliff Booth was a guy who served in the military. And it's interesting because when I, when I was watching the film the first time, there's a whole extended sequence, you know, where uh, Cliff Booth uh, goes out to Spawn Ranch to uh, see members of the Manson family, right? Members of the Manson family were living in Spawn Ranch, um, which is outside Los Angeles, it's this place where they used to film a ton of, you know, Western television shows. And it was owned by this guy named George Spahn, who by the late 1960s, the time period of the movie, the Manson family had moved to Spahn Ranch and Charlie Manson had essentially uh, pimped out, you know, one of his girls who used to follow him around squeaky uh, to George Spahn saying, take care of George, you know, have sex with him take him on walks, keep him company, watch TV with him so that he'll let us stay here and he'll be happy. Right? So Cliff Booth goes out to spawn ranch to essentially see George spawn 
to make sure that the hippies aren't taking advantage of them because Tarantino uses that whole real life history of Spawn Ranch because to, to tie into the fictional universe because the idea is that bounty law, you know, that show that Rick Dalton used to star in and Cliff Booth used to stunt on were filmed at Spawn Ranch, right? And so Cliff Booth goes out there to check on George Spawn. And um, when I was watching the movie for the first time two years ago, I was really tensed up that throughout this entire sequence where Brad Pitt's character, Cliff, goes into this dark, uh, you know, rancid house, dilapidated house of George Spawn with the entire Manson family swarming around him. And you're watching the film knowing that the Manson family are demented, sick psychopaths. They have no feelings at all. And also because you're a student of Tarantino films, you know that anybody can die at any moment. Okay. So you're like, and, and at that moment point in time in the movie, you love Brad Pitt. You love his character. You've been driving all over Los Angeles with him. You know, you've sat there in his trailer and watched him feed his dog. You know, you've really bonded with this character. And you're all of a sudden like, wow, two hours into the movie, I'm about to watch Brad Pitt get killed by the Manson family, right? Okay. So that's your understanding of what's going to happen in the movie. You're watching knowing that he's going to get killed. Well, when you read the book and you read all about Cliff Booth's history in the military, you know, killing Italians with Filipino freedom fighters, knowing that he murdered many people before and got away with it. You're not worried whatsoever about Brad Pitt (laughs) in that scene anymore. Like you, you know that basically anybody who's going to encounter uh, Cliff Booth with murderous intent is not going to make it out of that situation alive. Right. It's just not going to happen. So yeah. But once upon a time in Hollywood, the book is, uh, is an excellent read, especially for like the hot summer nights. Like now, you know, I went out every day this week and just put on a movie, like one of those, like kind of classic sixties Western type movies. Like I watched the wild bunch and had it playing on low volume and just read the book. And, and I like doing that sometimes, you know, when I'm reading, especially when it's a book that I don't really you know, like a novelization. I don't really have to pay too much attention to it because I kind of know what's going to happen, but it still surprises me anyway. I can still put on some music in the background, watch a movie, enjoy some whiskey, and it's all it's all good. It's all good, baby. All right, well, that's where I'm going to end it tonight. I think this has been my longest show this summer. This is a plus two hour show. Anyway, if you're still with me live, thank you so much for joining me. I had a great time. PQ and Adam and all the gang over at Paul's house on the back deck. Moody and Jody. Happy birthday once again. Um, once again, you can uh, catch this episode and all other shows of the Midnight Citizen over at MikeBooty.com slash the Midnight Citizen. You can listen to me and a bunch of other wonderful other night radio hosts uh, over at onsug.com, O-N-S-U-G.com. That's the Overnightscape Underground. 
And check out this live stream as well as a bunch of other live streams just like it over at youtube.com slash Mike Goody. Yeah, that's right. That's where you can find me. <laughs> and yeah, until next time, keep your eyes open.